Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 208 for August 6th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMyPC, the safe way to access your PC remotely that's as secure as online banking. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure, securing your operating system, securing your net connection, fighting off bad guys and spyware, protecting your privacy. And here he is, the czar of security, Mr. Steve Gibson. I think I did, in fact, in my cabinet, make you the czar of security. The czar, I'm the security czar. Well, I'll tell you, from all of the the nonsense I hear about Washington, D.C.'s attempt to find a security czar, no one is applying no, they're, they're, they're like the, the, the gal that's been temporary is, ste- is, ste- is stepping down very politely because she wants to put pressure on on the administration to find somebody to together. be the security czar. Yeah. But, you know, the people who are good enough to do that are also smart enough not to, you know, they're smart enough to know better because apparently they got no control over anything not budget or management or staffing or anything. They're just, and, and they're, they're split between two different organizations. I mean, it just sounds like a disastrous job and probably more frustrating than anything. And like, why would anyone want to hurt themselves? Yeah. With, uh, you know, and who have like, you know, the ability to do that. A so job, uh, a job with all the responsibility and none of the power. Yes. It doesn't sound good. Yes, it's just a lose, lose, lose. Yeah, yeah. It's like being governor of California. <laughs> another another fine job you do not want. Although I'm sure you know, you heard that, that Clinton Bill went over to North Korea and brought back our two prisoners. I am so happy about that. You know, it was just so cool. It caught me by surprise this morning. The first thing I saw is like, hey, very neat. We talked about it last night because they worked for Current. Una Lee was, was one of the reporters, worked at Tech TV. Um, and, uh, Oh, you knew her? Yeah. Well, oh, I don't wow. remember her, but I think I did know her, but I, you know, there were a lot of people at, at tech TV. I think she was an intern at the time. Um, but yeah. And she worked at current with Sarah Lane and, uh, Sarah was on the sh- on net at night last night and she said, there's reporters on the street. Um, uh, but we don't want to celebrate until they, we see them get off the plane. Well, they got off the plane and you know, kind of they were flying into Burbank airport for some reason, Isn't probably just odd? to, yeah. Yeah. But, well, it, it was apparently a chartered plane, so maybe that was you know the right place for it to land. Thank goodness, because these yeah. two women uh, were convicted of spying and sentenced to hard labor. Young women, yeah, not a yeah. not a good outcome, and so it's a, it's a great relief that. Uh, and you know, kudos to President Clinton. I think that's got to be a little scary to fly to North Korea. You don't know what Kim Kim Jong Il is going to do. Uh, and to sort of fly into the lion's den and save those women, I think it's uh, yeah. Kudos. Well, apparently he, you know, Madeleine Albright, his Secretary of State, did visit North Korea during his presidency. So there was some, you know, sort of a sense of an olive branch, and the the presumption was that that Kim Jong Il wanted some attention, and so this gave him exactly. You know, he couldn't he couldn't you know 
to have any of our current administration go over would have been too much. Can't do that. And, you know, uh, so I don't know. I think it was brilliant in retrospect. And, you know, thank goodness that's resolved. A relief. So today is a Q&A day. That means we have. uh, Yes, we had because we had to change things around two weeks ago. We did the mega security update that pushed a Q&A out. I wanted to. There was so much. Uh, stuff backlogged in our in grc.com slash feedback page, right. our mailbag, that I wanted to spend a couple of those. And this is a big episode for us. Actually, this one is, and next one will be, this is 208, which is four times 52, given that a year has 52 weeks. This is the end. This is the last episode of our fourth year. Wow. So, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, kudos to you because we know that because you can do the math. There's no other show, I think, in the world that has done four <laughs> four years worth of shows, 208 episodes, without break. I mean, that's unheard of. Not I one rerun. I, I found one message uh, when I was going through the mail uh, yesterday to prepare and select questions for today. Um, someone asked me, um, I think I think it was a woman said, uh, hey, you know, um, when Leo's on vacation, you know, you're apparently not. Do you ever take a vacation? And first of all, you know, when you're on vacation, I am too, technically, because I'm not doing podcasts without you. We do do extra ones ahead of time so that we have podcasts to to straddle any outage. But I just I truly love what I do so much that if I were on vacation, I'm just annoyed about all the work I'm not getting done. I'm, I, you know, I just, I love computers and technology and, you know, life. And so I'm on vacation all the time. I'm on vacation right now doing this with you. You know, they say that they say that the only difference between a hobby and work is, uh, is uh, whether you like to, do, whether you like to do it. There, there are people, I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in uh, his book outliers. There are people, uh, who pay money to drive trucks and trains, even though that's a job for some people. Right. For others, it's something they love so much that they'll pay to do it. So uh, I'm not saying I would pay to do this, but I sure, even if I uh, didn't have to, I think I, we'd, be, we'd be talking once a week, one way or the other. Hey, well, let's, uh, so do you have security news and updates? We got news, we got a little bit of errata, and we've got our Q&A. So let me uh, just briefly mention Audible before we get into the news. Uh, we uh, we love our friends at Audible, audible.com slash security now, the place to go to get that free book. Audible wants to introduce you to audio books. Uh, you know, Steve's got his Kindle. He loves his Kindle, and I love my Kindle. But I have to say, the first place I go when I want to read a new book, uh, when I want to find a book, is audible.com. Because if I can get it in audio, that's my preferred format. Why? Frankly, you you don't want your Kindle reading to you either. I mean, no, it can, do not but it's not that. good. No, it is not. Ain't going to. I, <laughs> no. It's good in a pinch. If like you're in the middle of a book and you got to get in the car and you, it's in a pinch. But, you you know, I'm spoiled by Audible because what they, they use professionals um, who are have beautiful voices and 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 know how to bring a story to life. And that's not exactly not what the Kindle has. <laughs> it's very utilitarian. Uh, you know, some authors were very worried about the Kindle's ability to read books. I thought, this is not your problem. This is not something you have to worry about. You know, we, I, I've recommended in the past Dune. And, uh, and I was just looking. There's a new Dune out. Brian Herbert, who uh, is the son of Frank Herbert, the guy who created Dune, has continued the Dune saga. 
and there's a new one, The Winds of Dune. And but I but I was just checking to see how many of these books are on Audible. Fifteen, fifteen Dune books, starting with the original. I'd recommended it in the past. The original on Audible is a kind of a semi dramatization. They have. Uh, females reading the female parts and it's really brings it to life and you need that with dune because there's the fairly complex uh you know a structure to this novel and lots of names and people and you know it's a it's a long novel if you this they they have scott brick uh, orlan cassidy ewan morton simon vance uh, all reading uh dune the original dune and they do such a good job if you have read dune however and you're ready to move on to the sequels, they're all here. Dune, Messiah, uh, the Butlerian, Jihad. I mean, I haven't. How many of these Dunes have you read, Steve? Have you read the uh, all the sequels? Um, no, I yeah. watched the movies. Um, I don't. I've read sure the original, I read, right? I, I'd read the original Dune back in the day. Um, and, I read Children and what, of Dune and Dune Messiah, which were the first. I think the first two sequels. Um, but then they go, it goes on. There's God Emperor of Dune and Paul of Dune and Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune. And they just, but if you're a Dune fan and you, and you, you love that Dune world you know, and you we want have to go winds on. Winds of Dune, we're going to blow the Dune away. <laughs> if you've not listened, you've got to, you've just got to try Dune uh, and start with the first. It's a wonderful adaptation. Uh, all the words, it's not, it's not like a dramatization in the sense that they've cut stuff out. It's all it's 21 hours. All the words but they're using the voices to really bring it to life. And I think they've done a wonderful, wonderful job. The other problem with Dune is there's all these words like Kwisatz Haderach and the Bene Gesserit that you go, I don't know even how to say that when you're reading it. When you're listening, you know, it, 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 it all makes sense. So let me recommend this as your first Audible book. Go to audible.com slash security now. And whichever is the last Dune you read, get the next one. 15 volumes. That'll keep you busy for a while. Now, In the an Audible podcast? Sorry, sorry. Isn't an audiblepodcast.com? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We have different URLs for every show, and it's very confusing to me. But please use the right one because we want to give Steve credit. Audible thank you, Steve. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You'll sign up for the gold account. Steve will get the credit. It's just credit. It's not it's not it's not like you get paid differently. It's, it's so they know which show, you know, people listen to where where they get the uh, idea to subscribe and uh, pick from 60,000 titles. You're going to love each and every yeah, one of them. It's the podcast that gets credit is what you meant, right? Well, you the podcast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at it, it all it all's the same. It's just that they want to know which podcasts work the best. So right. If you heard it here, use audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, I'm sorry, that's a lot of typing, but you only have to enter it once. From then on, you'll go to audible.com. We do thank them so much for their support of uh, of all of the Twitch shows. I think every single Twitch show has Audible uh, as a sponsor, which is really nice. And that's why they want to kind of keep track of which shows get the, the best results. One of the reasons this comes up is because I think sometimes people just use Twit generically. And uh, that's not fair to Steve. Use audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Steve Gibson, what is the latest security news? Well, we have a bunch of follow-ups, interestingly enough, from last week. Um, We know, for example, that the iPhone was patched uh, exactly as we predicted the day after the formal SMS hack of, of version 3 and prior versions was made public. 
So Apple finally got off the stick. I mean, I guess they were frantic for, you You have to imagine, for a few weeks beforehand, since we know we knew about this problem a few weeks beforehand. Um, it was patched. So if anybody has not been to iTunes recently, um, you definitely want to do that in order to update yourself to 3.0.1. Yes, and I did it immediately. Um, one point to make is, so far, no reports, uh, despite the fact that this there was a kind of a 24-hour, zero-day opportunity. No reports of exploits at this point. That's good news. Yeah. Um, you know, there will... Who, who knows whether... It could I mean, have happened because you may not know, right? Correct. If you didn't know, if you didn't update your phone, if uh, it seems to me that the intersection of, of reality needed to make this happen is relatively small. Somebody would have to know your phone number. I mean, they're probably targeting you specifically, who also right. had the skill or ability to, you know, to to get this thing from the net and and perpetrate the hack. So I think going forward, we and Microsoft and Apple and everybody should make the distinction between uh, a completely theoretical attack, an attack that we know how to do but hasn't been in the wild, and then one that is actually out there in the wild do, do they make that distinction oh yeah normally there there will be specifically for, for for example one of the things we're going to talk about is that bind has been fixed we talked about the 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 master server update problem which could crash and potentially um take over bind servers but it was only known to to cause a crash and that a fix is available. And, but at the same time, that vulnerability is now being actively exploited on the net to crash bind servers. So, so normally there is, a, certainly in the Microsoft case, they will say that exploits are in the wild and that this is something you really need to patch for that reason. Yeah. And Apple doesn't do that. Um, in fact, Apple is very notoriously kind of tight-lipped about yep. what their updates do. I don't think I, I don't remember anyway when uh, the three hundred one uh, you know was alerted uh, alerted me to say you must get this right now. There's a big SMS hack. They just said here's an update. Um, yeah, oh, by I, the way, yeah, I think they might in their tech note. I think they said this patches the SMS vulnerability. The irony is, uh, you still have to download the full firmware. It's almost three hundred megabytes, even for this one little fix, which could have been a few bytes. I mean, who knows. I wish they would reveal a little bit more about what they fixed. Yeah, of course. Then the flip side is the more they, I mean, here we are worrying about after the patch attacks on people who have not been patched. If Mike, even though Apple has said, hey, you know, we, we fixed it, they're not, they're, they're still not disclosing a lot. So clearly they're wanting to keep a lid on this, recognizing that there is still an attack surface among those people who do not update f for whatever reason or until they update until they next check in with iTunes and or or the word gets to them somehow so um i i guess i can understand that but you know it's this double edged sword that we have with with security and vulnerability on one hand we want these companies to be open but to be open means Unless there's a system like Microsoft has that is pushing these patches out and Microsoft can be, oh, you know, fairly certain that, you know, the bulk of their customers are going to be updated because Lord knows they don't make it easy not to get updated any, any longer. 
um, you know, it, it is certainly a trade-off you have to make. Yeah. Um, Firefox, my version three, I'm not at three, five yet. I'm still back at 3.0. I was at 3.0.12. It updated to 13. I noticed that. Yeah. Or mine. up. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Cause 3.1 update, 3.5 updated too. Well, 3.5 has gone to 0.1 a couple of weeks ago. And now it's two. Okay. Um, there is so you a, were right to hold off. <laughs> there, yeah, well, there's an, there's an interesting hack which was revealed at the Black Cat conference, which is, re, which is one, I think it's the first question that we've got in our Q&A, so I will cover it more then. But I'm very pleased that Firefox instantly responded, i.e. hasn't yet and is vulnerable, Microsoft, I mean, and, and, um, but, but Mozilla immediately responded to that. Um, we'll discuss what that is in our first Q and a, they also fixed a heat buffer overflow in the their security certificate handling. There was three Firefox three had been bringing along sort of a flexible, regular expression parsing approach to certificates that that three, five never had. 3.5 3.5 used a more traditional sort of standard approach to parsing certificates. It turns out there was a vulnerability in the version in that older, long-standing sort of inherited from the Netscape days parsing, which they've now fixed. And there was a really interesting vulnerability that they have fixed uh, that a security researcher, Juan Pablo Lopez Jacobian, uh, reported where an attacker could use, not surprisingly, JavaScript uh. to use the window open JavaScript on an invalid URL. That is a URL that you didn't mean, which looks similar to a legitimate URL. That would Then they were able to use the document write JavaScript to, place, to replace the content in... Um, uh, with what they wanted it to look like, like looking like eBay, for example, appearing to have it come from a spoof location. And then if the spoof document was created by a document with a valid SSL certificate, even though it was not where you thought you were going, the SSL indicators would carry over from the from the wrong document into the spoof document. The bottom line of all this was it, it allowed a... A, a typo to with a typo that would take you to a site that used JavaScript to replace the page and spoof the SSL correctness of what you mistyped, making you look like, for example, you were at PayPal with all the indicators that your security your security Ooh. certificate was valid. Ooh. So the good news is that's gone. Good. That's fixed in three point zero point one three and these things were also fixed in 3.5.2 that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So Firefox is updated. Anybody using Firefox probably already knows. Um, I found out this morning when I, when I fired things up and logged in and, and got going. It says, oh, we got an update for you. It's funny, too, because I depend upon my Firefox session manager remembering all the tabs I have open. It's just sort of become a big database repository for me. But I had two Firefox windows open at that moment. And so I wasn't sure that it would remember them both. So I had to like work through the tabs on one, although I could have dragged them all over to the other because you can drag tabs across windows now. Um, 
You still anyway. use that uh, sidebar tab extension. I'm liking right? it a lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And now, unfortunately, my sidebar is scrolling. <laughs> Even because I've got so, I've got so many tabs, it's like okay, I'll get around to this one of these days. You know, we had Kevin Rose on uh, Twitter a few uh, weeks ago, and uh, he said, "Okay, quick, tell us how many tabs you've got open." And everybody on the show had like twenty tabs open. So yeah. this sidebar tab thing is great, but if you, but if you if you've got that scrolling, oh, there's no help for you at all. That must be like no. sixty or seventy tabs open. Like I'll get around. I'll get back to that one of these days. The name of that, by the way, is uh, for people who want to know, is Tree Style Tab. Yep, exactly. Steve recommended that a few weeks ago. So um, uh, we talked about Bind, which fixes are now available. So any anyone who is is an admin responsible for their corporate DNS server. It's likely a master. Um, it probably didn't need to receive update messages, but there was a problem that was found. We talked about it last week. I just want to let everyone know that patches are available, so you're going to want to update your bind to the current release and solve this problem. And again, this is being actively exploited by creeps on the Internet. All it really lets them do is crash people's DNS servers. It's like, okay, well, oh boy. Um, you know, it's it's annoying, but, you know, people are doing it all over the place. So, really? Nice. yeah, you, you want to get yourself updated to prevent that from happening. And in the Adobe Flash Player news, we talked about their problems last week, which were not fixed, but they were, had said they would be fixing them soon. Um, I chuckled a little bit because I'm sure our listeners will remember me rolling my eyes figuratively for those who don't see video but you know i was rolling my eyes <laughs> literally when, yes when when adobe uh announced that they were going to be doing their they were increasing their uh patching protocol or patching formality going to be more responsive and so they were new they were going to do quarterly patches whereas microsoft does the monthly and i remember at the time saying what i mean that makes no sense at all We'll see how long this lasts. Well, it didn't last even a quarter um, because they had some bad problems in 9.1 that need, then they needed to update themselves immediately to 9.1.3, I think is where they are, and version 10. Anyway, I wanted to make sure people knew that Flash Player updates for 9 and 10 are now available, so you'll want to check and make sure you get updated. And I did turn a machine on the other day that said, oh, we got an update for Flash. It's like, okay, good, that. That's it's time. And I noted, you know, we've been talking about Adobe like people will probably notice every week, which, you know, is not what you want to be talking about. No if, kidding. If you're the target Boy. of this conversation on a security yeah. podcast. Um, there's an, an, an editor of the SANS newsletter, which is an excellent, excellent SANS security newsletter. Uh, Stephen Northcutt, who's also the president of SANS Technology Institute. And they sometimes add little their editors' comments to the bottom of their of their reports of problems. And I got a kick out of his comment in this most recent newsletter this week. He said, quote, I think organizations should avoid Adobe if possible. <laughs> Adobe Adobe and this is not who you want to have saying this. Um, no, Sands Ad is highly respected. Yes. It says Adobe he he, he goes on saying Adobe Security appears to be out of control oh dear and using their products seems to put your organization at risk try to minimize your attack surface limit the use of adobe products whenever you can and it's like wow Ouch. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Carnegie Mellon did a study which hit the news, uh, uh, which basically stated that in their relatively small survey, it was only about 100 people, but apparently 55, meaning more than half, of the people that they watched encounter expired security certificates ignored the expiration. Oh, I'm surprised it wasn't higher. It went on anyway. Most people would just go, I don't know what this is. Okay, I just want to surf. It's exactly the problem yeah. is that people were confused by the notices, yeah. didn't really read them, just sort of said, uh, okay, whatever, and said, you know, whatever, what button do I push so that I can continue? <laughs> And it's funny, too, because, I mean, I saw that. I witnessed it myself firsthand. You'll remember that GRC's own security certificate expired to my extreme embarrassment a few months ago. And I scrambled around. I was, you know, I was set up at Starbucks in the morning when it came to my attention. So I zipped home and had to go through, uh, the, you know, jump through hoops to get VeriSign to issue me an update, a renewal as quickly as I could. Um, however... Spinrite sales continued even in the face of that security certificate yeah. being expired. Now, and now they're giving you credit card information too. I mean, it's not just a visit. Yes, exactly. It, it's it's not just go to perfect paper passwords or perfect yeah. passwords and pick up a password. It's I want to buy Spinrite and I'm going to put in my credit wow. card information into this site. You, we might assume, however, that visitors to GRC are are more sophisticated and. And they were able to see, oh, look, it says here that Gibson's certificate expired yesterday. So I imagine he's scrambling around right now, right. as indeed I was, to get it caught up to date. But people did push past that. And there's, there's now discussion about whether it should be possible in a browser to push past that because it's up to the browser's discretion to allow you to either you know, disallow any SSL that has a certificate that is deemed invalid for any reason. You know, certainly, you know, mismatching domain names, you never want to get past that. But, I mean, I've encountered other people with with certificates that expired just recently, and I've forgiven them because it's like, okay, um, I can see how that could happen. I'm sure they're scrambling just as I was. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting, though, that more than half of people when they see a cert, an expired cert, uh, we'll say, oh, okay, fine. I, I still want to do what I want to do. So make an exception Never and mind. move on. Yeah. And then my very favorite story of the week comes to us from the Black Hat and DEF CON conferences in Las Vegas. Boy, it's been an adventure this week, hasn't it? Oh, there was a ton <laughs> oh, of stuff. Oh, man. Not just what the I iPhone loved, thing. I mean, What just, I ooh. loved was the fake ATM machine. Yeah which was found during yeah. the DEFCON conference. Jeez. People were putting their credit cards, you know, were like, like swiping their ATM card, putting in their pin and nothing was happening. It wasn't giving them cash. And they, then they That's thought kind oh, of a red flag. Yeah, exactly. And then the way it was discovered was that some, I mean, here we've got security aware conference attendees. Someone noticed that the black hole above the screen where the normally the video camera would be yeah. didn't seem to have any lens reflection coming <laughs> off of it. There's nothing in there. <laughs> so they shined a flashlight in and saw a PC sitting behind, <laughs> literally sitting behind the screen 
pretending to be an ATM. And that was their clue that maybe this was a bogus ATM and the Secret Service came and took it away. Wow. So I got a kick out of that happening. How long was it there before it was uh, they figured it out? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know at what point it appeared. It was placed near the security entrance, which, interestingly enough, had no security. There were, there was a, it's an area where there was a camera blackout. For whatever reason, there weren't monitoring cameras that covered its location. So someone snuck it in, and it sort of sat there, and no one really noticed it until wow. it began you know, not giving people money back. Wow. So I have a couple little bits of errata. Can um, I give you one story that just broke? Oh, yeah, yeah. Critical Windows 7 bug. Oh, haven't heard of it. It's not a security issue exactly, but it but it is a what they call a showstopper. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, and so RTM is no longer RTM? Apparently not. This, uh, this affects uh, the RTM build 7600.16385. See. Enterprise Desktop Column, Randall C. Kennedy and InfoWorld says, a massive memory leak involving check disk. When you uh, run check disk against a secondary drive, not the not the C drive, but a secondary drive using slash R, which means read and verify, uh, in both 32-bit and 64-bit versions of Windows 7, blue screen of death out of physical memory. Ooh. Damn. Well, and you can't do a slash R on the primary drive because it'll tell you that it's right. in use. Right. And it'll ask you if you want to do the if you want to defer the check disk for the next time you reboot the machine right. so that it's able to get, briefly get exclusive use of the drive before Windows starts and opening files and doing everything it does. So no idea if, uh, you know, maybe if you do do that reboot and then it and then do a slash R if it does it on the main drive, but it does yeah. do it on the uh, secondary drives. Um, wow. So I don't know what Microsoft's response is going to be, but this is a number of people are reporting this right now. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there if seven and I don't know this at all for a fact, you and Paul probably do know because I've, I've you know, I, it'll be a long time before I'm messing with Windows seven, except as a curiosity. But I noted that IE eight now when you install it, it asks you, may I bring myself current with all security updates before we go any further? And I wouldn't be at all surprised that that's Microsoft's new policy for when you install something before it even starts. It says, okay, hold on a second. I'm going to, you know, who knows how long it's been since this particular code you've just used to yeah. set me up, how old that is. Yeah. I'm going to go ping Microsoft and see if there's anything I need to do right now before we even start. So it could be that that even though this is a problem with the RTM, that they can fix this in, you know, patch 00001 of of windows 7 and so no one will see it it will you know immediately upon installing it, it'll say wait a second we're going to update ourselves oh look we found something <laughs> it's like okay so uh and by the way i should point out that if you've got a memory leak that can cause that to happen um that often is a, isn't that often a first step in a, in an exploit well it's Maybe not even not. clear that it's that's not a good actually exploit. that doesn't sound to me like a memory leak that sounds like the some allocation error and right. maybe that's been misreported. For example, right. if you used to try to run Windows 98 on a system with more than a gigabyte of memory, 98 was quite happy with 512 meg. Right. You'll you'll remember. And if you actually tried to run it on a system with more memory, it would 
say that you didn't have enough memory. It would report out of memory error rather than, I don't know what to do with all this. So it could just be a fluke of whatever's gone wrong is resulting in this this particular problem, it may well not be an out-of-memory error. It just might be saying that it is. So, right. no, without without really looking at it, it, it's hard to say. And I imagine that's an easy thing to fix. I mean, it's not it's not a kernel problem, probably. Although oh. Microsoft's saying it might be a driver issue. I'm sure it's easy. In fact, yeah. there were there was news about the. Remember, we had we talked last week about the big Microsoft glitch in the ATL, the Active Template Library that had been part of Visual Studio for a long time, which meant that all of the ActiveX controls, which were made with Visual Studio and this ATL, all had a problem. It turns out it was a single ampersand bug. There was an ampersand that was there that shouldn't have been Hmm. that caused the whole problem. They called it a typo. It's like, okay, well, I guess, you know, a lot of bugs are typos, but, you know, <laughs> this this blue screen of death from from uh, running check disk might be, you know, something similar. Who knows? Whatever it is, it's obviously wrong. Yeah. If you dereference a pointer, that could be a typo, but it also could be a programming yeah, error. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I'm thinking yeah. is going on with an ampersand. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, OK, well, they didn't know what they were. You know, someone isn't happy about the ampersand, but that doesn't mean it's a typo. A typo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Go ahead. Well, um, one of our listeners uh, was kind enough to uh, point me to the Sci-Fi AZ website where Michael friend. McCullum yeah. publishes his science fiction. Yeah. He posted a progress report um, last week, Monday before last, on the status of the third and final book in the Gibraltar series. I love the series. Uh, Gibraltar Earth was the first one. Gibraltar Sun is the second one. Gibraltar Stars will be the third one. Um, And he just posted an update to sort of let people know where things stand. He just finished the first draft. Um, The book is about... See, I'm holding off. I started Gibraltar Earth, and I thought, I'm going to wait until he finishes the trilogy. I don't blame you. Um, I I read Earth. Then when Sun came out, I reread Earth and read Sun. And I've, I've offered, and he has accepted to um, to edit the, the final book for him because when I have read through them, I have found typos. And since I'm reading it on in this, in this case in a palm, it's easy for me to mark this section and make a note. So I've sent him, you know, like little corrections for his ebooks Can in the past. Can you get those on the Kindle? Uh, Weren't you trying he, to help him do that? Absolutely. He's got it now in amazing variety of formats. I mean, you can get it on your back molar format. <laughs> I don't want to read it on my back anything, molar. <laughs> anything you've got, his stuff will oh, read good. on. Oh, good. Um, and so he's at 130,000 words, and um, he's going to go through it now. He's going to reread it. And, and what he's, the way he phrased it on his site, he said 15% will be removed to main to quote maintain dynamic tension or as he says to take out the boring parts <laughs> so um so he and so he he too he's going to reread earth and sun to to kind of remind himself what they were because this has been going on this is this this series straddles about 10 years so as, as he puts it on his site he wants to remove any small discrepancies that creep in over the better part of a decade uh, of writing a series. 
So he's just going to make sure everything is is con- con- consistent. Because of course, you know, as geeks, we'll read it and go, "Hey, wait a minute! You said that the uh, the Plurion race drank this rather." It's like, okay, fine. You know? I can't imagine uh, doing what he's doing. I mean, uh, and keeping track of all that. I well, mean, I, it, they're very complex plots. I love his plots because they're you know he is a, a nuclear engineer, literally, and his. I, I, I find his books really fun. I mean, they're not literature. They're, they're space opera, right. but they're really engaging. And he has created, he has set up a problem for the human race, which I've never seen before in all the sci-fi that I've read, which is really interesting. I, I mentioned before that there's a, a race called the Broan, and they haven't stumbled on us yet, but they are a huge... Um, supremacy they just absorb any other cultures and alien races that they encounter getting bigger in the process and that we would immediately be enslaved if they knew about us and so this is a problem because it's by the merest coincidence of positioning that our radio hasn't our, our expanding radio sphere hasn't yet touched them but and they've got listening posts scattered around because they're looking to acquire new species, you know, to to take over. So, oh, it's just it's just this is a spectacular space opera. Yeah, yeah. and I, well, I, I will go back to it. I'm glad to know that he's working on the third edition and or third volume. And yep, I'll, I will let I'll you know. Uh, we'll How do you our, like? Our, have you been reading Red Mars? What do you think of it? I've got them all on my Kindle. I just haven't had a chance okay. to start. I've been massively engaged in research elsewhere. Uh, which will be uh, the topic for next week's podcast. I also wanted to mention Sony is coming out with a pocket ebook reader at a sub $200 price. Um, It's got a five inch screen. It'll that's not very sub 200. It's $1 sub 200. It's 199. Uh, It's supposed to be end of August. And um, their store is up to about a hundred thousand books. Whereas Amazon is at 330,000 books. So Amazon still has a big lead. Of course, Sony has access to all the, to a million public domain books through Google um, and is all, all, also an open ebook format, whereas the Kindle is closed. Uh, and finally, Apple is reportedly working on an ebook reader. Well, this tablet, we don't, you know, it's going to be more than an ebook reader. Right. It's, a, it's really a, like a big iPhone, I guess. Well, and but we don't know be, what it is. I mean, can you imagine anything better than an exactly being an iPhone, but really big format right. and being a tablet running Mac OS? It's like, ooh. We may know soon. I mean, the, 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 there's debate over when it'll be announced, but some say as soon as next month. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 good. Okay. And one last thing. Just This, is, this came out of nowhere. This was actually, an, again, from, a, oh, no, it was from Steve Bass. Uh, Steve, and, and oh, you know Steve. Steve. Yeah. Yes, he, he's the ex-president of PibMug, the Pasadena IBM PC user group. He has a newsletter that he sends out from time to time, and he often has a section of time wasters. Well, this thing is a piece of, is runs in Flash, and don't do not put this URL into your browser now, Leo, or I will lose you for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's just spectacular. Okay. It's a toy puzzle, beautiful thing. www. It's playauditorium.com. P L A Y A U D I T O R I U M 
com. This has been around for a while, actually. Oh, has it? Oh, I yeah. had seen it before. Just, oh, yeah. just spectacular. I've wasted a lot of time with it. Yeah, yeah. I will be, too, because it's, it's exactly the kind of puzzle and toy that uh, that intrigues me because there's no, you're not in a hurry there's no time limit there's no clock counting down there's it seems like there's multiple ways to solve these to solve these puzzles as you as you stumble on and experiment with ways to to solve them you learn more about this it's just it's just wonderful so i wanted to turn our listeners on to it www.playauditorium.com it's kind of amazing what you can do with flash you know i i'm very yeah. impressed and it, it. and it makes beautiful uh music i should Play well. I, you have to do it. You have to solve the problem before it'll make the music. But once you do, it makes great music. Yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah. really neat. And so, lastly, a fun spinrite story provided to us by Juan Guevara Torres. Uh, he said, uh, "He says, hi, Steve. I'm a Mac user, so I do not own a copy of Spinrite. However, the other day I went to a computer store in Houston to get a new device for my network, following the trust no one policy I've learned from Security Now." A poor fellow, a PC user and his wife, visibly worried about their data, was in the tech support department. Since this person was ahead of me in line, I was able to overhear the following conversation. He calls it the the store's pseudo-technician, says, I'm sorry, sir, your hard drive has been damaged. You will need to pay $299, $299 for a technician to attempt to recover as much data as possible. This is not a guarantee, but we can try. And that does not include the new drive you will probably need as well. So the poor fellow is quoted as saying, but for that price, I can get a new drive. And what about my data? So you're saying I might not recover all of it. The store's pseudo technician replies, we will try. But once again, it's not a guarantee. Uh, Should I start filling out this work order for you? The wife of the poor fellow says, $2.99, I told you not to take your laptop on our trip. Now your pictures are lost and we'll be out 300 bucks for nothing. So, so losing data, I guess this is now um, Juan editorializing. Losing, losing data is bad. Losing data and paying 299 is very bad. But there's nothing worse than having an upset wife about losing your data and paying 299 That poor fellow was doomed to hear this story for the rest of his marriage and maybe for life. <laughs> Listening to all, so now Juan says, listening to all the praise Spinrite users have been sharing with all of us in the podcast, I approached the couple and the technician. I asked flat out, I would imagine the software you use for recovering data is Spinrite, correct? The pseudo technician gave me a dirty look. <laughs> the couple looked at me with a little bit of WTF. Uh-huh. The technician answered, yes, we use that software. You know, it's a very complex process. Oh, yes. (laughs) Juan says, I'm sure it is, I said. Then I turned to the couple, still with the WTF look on their face, I might add, and I said, I'm sorry to just cut into the conversation. However, the software the technician is talking about is available on the Internet for less than $100. I understand it's a very easy-to-use piece of software as well. So, before paying $299, why don't you go to grc.com and give it a try? In any case, that's what they are going to do anyway. The poor fellow with a slight smile on his face and a huge Texan, ac- Texan accent said, thanks, bud, I'll try it. <laughs> and then Juan finishes saying, here's my email. Drop me a line oh, and let nice. me know how it worked, I said. 
So then he says, yesterday I got an email from the not so poor fellow anymore. Juan, thanks, bud. Spinrite did the trick. Those 80 something dollars I paid saved my data. And I'm telling you, man, my marriage. <laughs> now, you don't guarantee that data will be recovered, we should say. No, we do guarantee that if you're not happy with your purchase, we'll refund oh, your money. I didn't know that. That's good. Absolutely. 100% satisfaction guarantee. Because anybody not, there's, who, there's, who tries it and they're not happy, just let us know. We'll put the money back on your card. There's all sorts of reasons why your data might be lost that spin right. Like if you erased it, that spin right's not going to find it. Well, yeah. Or if the, if the platters have frozen or the right. heads have fallen off or it no longer spins at all. I mean, there are limits to what software can do to repair hardware. Spin right pretty much pushes that all the way to the limit. And again, if it doesn't work, we'll give you your money back. And a large, a surprisingly large number, certainly the majority of problems can be fixed by spin right. They, that's, that's the kind of the sweet spot of where hard drives have problems. It really does work. Yeah. All right. We've got questions. Steve's got answers. We're going to get to those questions and answers in just a second. Steve, if you want to take a sip of water. <laughs> I'll sip my coffee. Uh, sip your coffee, your triple, what is it, a venti, quad venti you got today? Uh, it's two shots of espresso in a large uh, oh, you're a in, lightweight. In a venti container. You're so lightweight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so Alex Lindsay's got me drinking triple talls now, which is the uh, smallest. It, it, it's an Americano. It's not. Oh, so you have an Americano. Water. Yeah. Yeah. Although they say, oh, but they make it with espresso though. They do. Yeah. Because they say that brewed coffee, and I think we're going to start a whole debate on that, but that brewed coffee has more caffeine. Oh, it does. Much more caffeine yeah, than, than, espresso. than espresso. The longer you roast the beans, that roasts the caffeine out. Oh. And so even though it's a much stronger taste, it's yeah. actually less, it's less um, espresso. Not that Le- uh, it doesn't. Sorry, less caffeine. Less caffeine. I'm... Not that it doesn't get you going. I like it. I had my triple tall today, and I'm feeling. I don't fine. need any more caffeine. No, I don't need either. <laughs> and now, <laughs> let's get to our commercial from the good folks at Citrix who do the fabulous. Go to my PC. Uh, you know, you're if you're like Steve, I think a lot of people are. You don't want to use the next greatest thing because you want to make sure it's rock solid. It's locked down. It's secure. It's safe. That's why he still uses Firefox three, not three five. While he's still using Windows, are you using Vista or are you still back with XP? I don't even know. You, XP. He's two versions almost ago. So it, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. Uh, for instance, a lot of times when people uh, first started using online banking, there was a kind of this fear, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait and make sure it's secure. And, and in fact, that was probably a good thing to do. If you've been waiting for remote access technology to be safe, secure, mature, your wait is over. Go to my PC is absolutely secure never been cracked 128 bit ssl that's why state-of-the-art encryption multiple winner pc world's world-class award and so easy to use i want you to go and you can try it for free right now you'll see how easy it is go to go to my slash security now security now uses nat traversals so you don't have to ever worry about configuring your firewall or opening ports or port forwarding uh that solves that problem because it's using this system of uh, going through the go to my PC site, it uses that SSL end and 128-bit encryption. You know, absolutely secure um, and couldn't be easier to use. Go to mypc.com/security now. Once you sign up for the free account, you click connect. Actually, click download. You'll download it within two minutes. It'll be installed. Now, wherever you go, 
whether it's China, an internet cafe in Timbuktu, the airport, a hotel, by the pool at home, as long as you can get online, you go to go to mypc.com, you enter your secure username and password, and you are connected to your office computer. You can do anything you could do if you were sitting right in front of it. In fact, it looks like you are. It's full, it can go full screen just like you're there. Send and receive email, run any program, access any network resource. You can even drag and drop files from one computer to the other. They, they, they couldn't make this more robust, easier to use, more secure. It's go to mypc.com slash security now. It's all I use. It's the only remote access product I use. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Citrix house all the way. And I know you will be too once you try it. Give it a try. Go to mypc.com slash security now. You don't have to worry. It's been around for years. It's been hammered on, banged on. No security flaws ever. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of uh, our show. We really are glad to have them aboard. Now, Mr. Stephen Gibson. Well, while you were reading that, Leo, I just bought a PDP-11. No. Yeah, I just won an auction on eBay. <laughs> I gave him a break, and what does he do? He buys an obsolete mini computer. Beautiful for two hundred and twenty-five dollars and ninety-four cents. Not a simulator. Not a not a reef. This is the original. It's a PDP eleven eleven twenty-three full height stand. The description says one complete digital deck micro PDP eleven twenty-three system. Amazingly, this unit was still being used in an office environment and was fully operational wow. when shut down. Everything inside the case is intact and untouched. Dual front floppy drives and hard drive. Maintenance log is included. Rare find. Aren't you amazing? $225.94. So I scored on that one. <laughs> How many do you have now? Uh, about 15. What are you going to do? Are you making a, a cluster? What are you no, I'm just, you know, they might die. I might, I know, you know how many Palm Pilots Do you I have, have them in the freezer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you'd be kind of cool to line them up all on the wall, you know, and you could. Well, they're all various types, makes and models, and uh, someday I'm going to program them. Great. I love it. In the meantime, we're actually going to do a, 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 a Q&A. Q&A. Yeah, now that you've, you've, you've scored. <laughs> Brian Mooney, question one, Mr. G. In Springdale, Arkansas. Brings news of news of a new SSL problem. Steve, it looks like they've found another method to work around SSL. And, and here I am saying how secure SSL is. This isn't based on the faults in the encryption, but in faults in how browsers handle null characters. And he's quoting an article in Macworld magazine from July uh, saying the only safe browser is Firefox 3.5. Frylock also raises the issue. Are SSL certs completely broken and useless? He says, huge fan of the show since episode one. Ran across this on Hackaday.com. Does this not render SSL certificates useless? Please. Oh, this is so wonderful, Leo. (laughs) this, this, This surfaced during the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas. It turns out that a a, a null character, that is a zero, uh, is... To give a little bit of background about how computers process strings for our listeners, a, a a string like, you know, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. They, a string in some languages, like you may, you may remember Pascal, you had a byte for the length. It was the first character. That is the first byte of the string was the length. And then you just had the characters that followed. Does anybody still do it that way? No. They're all uh, zero be- terminated now. Null be- terminated. Yes, because the problem with that was... 
that you could not in Pascal, the old early U, the original USC, UCSD Pascal, you could never have a string longer than 255 characters. Oh, because you only had a byte length to represent it. Because you had a byte. And so, you know, those designers back then said, well, that's plenty. No one will ever need more than that. <laughs> exactly. Now, what that allowed you to do was to have zeros in the string because the zeros didn't have any special meaning. Right. Contemporary languages, like you know, most notably C, there are so-called null terminated strings, meaning that it's a, a string is any collection of characters going on as long as it wants to until a zero byte, a so-called null character. So strings are null terminated, meaning that you read them until you, you, know, you, 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 you follow the string character by character until you hit a zero, telling you, ah, that I've just hit the end of the string. And in fact, that characteristic is indirectly responsible for many of the security vulnerabilities we have because it turns out that it's it's one of the ways you're able to get um, exploits to, for example, copy code from one place to another and, you know, do your bidding is fancy uses of this null termination. Well, it turns out that browsers, all browsers, except at this point, now Firefox 3 has been fixed. 3.5 was, um, and uh, NSS, which is the is the Mozilla package that handles secure socket technology, they fixed that too. But other browsers are are stopping the parsing of the domain name in a security certificate at a null. It's not very surprising. That's sort of what you'd expect. The problem is that the security certificate issuers are not looking at nulls in the domains that you apply for. So here's the scenario. This is wonderful. You apply for a certificate for www.paypal.com null dot my malicious site dot com the as is all so what that looks like to your certificate authority is you're asking for a subdomain certificate of my malicious site dot com much like for example i might i did get like a, a, a certificate www.grc.com. So it's grc.com is the root domain. www is a subdomain, mm-hmm. uh, as we know, of grc.com. But in this case, the subdomain is www.paypal.com null. Then, you know, mymaliciousdomain.com. So since oh. you control mymaliciousdomain.com, the, you know, a the, the, the certificate, um, uh, authority says, make sure that you want it. You want a certificate for this subdomain. You say, yes, I would like one very much, please. So they issue it to you. Now you have a valid certificate for this funky domain. The problem is that browsers not knowing any better, stop at the first null they mm-hmm, encounter. Mm-hmm. Technically, the second null in this case is the actual end of the domain name, but the browser really can't even be faulted for not knowing that. So, so now, the one thing that you could normally not do 
with an SSL connection is a man-in-the-middle attack because there is no way for you, if you were able to use, for example, ARP spoofing or just splice yourself into a connection somehow, there's no way for you in the middle to to pretend to have the valid certificate for PayPal.com because only PayPal has it as long as, you know, security uh, certificate authorities do their job. But now you can now do a man-in-the-middle attack. So if you, are, if you can arrange to intercept traffic, then as soon as you see somebody attempting to go to PayPal.com, you, you splice into that connection and you return your certificate with the, the www.paypal.com null subdomain. Since it was a valid certificate issued by a certificate authority, your browser checks the certificate, sees that it's valid. Now it does a comparison of the domain you entered in the URL to the name on the certificate. It stops at the first null, www.paypal.com matches, and it says, yes, you are connected to paypal.com. So it is a... It is a, a functioning, valid SSL certificate spoofing technique that is currently unpatched on any but Firefox browsers. Wow. Really cool. I mean, this is just a beautiful hack. Interesting. You know, hats off for, for the guys who discovered this one. So how would you be bit? You would uh, go, you'd have to go to a malicious site to begin with that was no. posing as PayPal, right? No, no, you, what it, it this requires traffic interception. So, oh, it's a man in wanna, the middle. Yes, so I want to, yes, yes. now having talked about how cool this is, I want to back the terror level off yeah. from all of our listeners because this is, this isn't going to a malicious site. This isn't, you know, they're like, in order to do this, this is a man in the middle attack. So, it's only somebody who can be filtering your traffic, who can be now, you know, for example, open Wi-Fi. Open Wi-Fi is prone to man in the middle because there's no encryption on your connection. So this is a perfect example of something that ARP spoofing, which, for example, in a in a hotel that uses hubs instead of routers that we've talked about years ago or in, a, in an open Wi-Fi situation, you can imagine a toolkit where that could be developed. I'm sure they're in the works right now. Um, it may well already be that Metasploit supports this because it doesn't take them long to do, you know, to update their Metasploit framework for, for these kinds of things. And this got everybody intrigued, but it means that you have to have your traffic intercepted. So absent that, <clears throat> absent that, there's no way that somebody could use this funky certificate. You can imagine that all the certificate authorities who also know about this are going to get on the ball and be careful not to issue domain names with null characters in them, and that very quickly all the browsers will be updated in order to be smarter about this. So I think this will close fast, but it's open at the moment except for Firefox. And you probably don't have anything to worry about. And you probably don't have anything to worry about. It would, I mean, it would really require someone have access to your traffic. It's, you know... I would say in the in the habits that most people have non-secured Wi-Fi is the really Ooh. is the only obvious place yeah. where this could could happen and frankly there it's trivial 
Sparky's I mean, it, saying, what about a blended threat using the DNS, a DNS spoof, perhaps? Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, that's another way of somebody getting you to go to the wrong site. So if you, because normally the DNS spoof would, would take you to the wrong IP for what you thought you had entered. Right. Oh, wait, no, that wouldn't work because you would, you would, your browser would, your browser would think it was going, let me think, would that work or not? Uh, the certificate. Oh yeah, that would work. Absolutely. Your browser thinks it's going to paypal.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes to the wrong IP. But gets the a certificate. Yes, the certi- the server there returns its valid certificate right. that's got paypal.com on the front and mymaliciouswebsite.com on the right. back and your browser would be completely happy with it. So yes, that's another, you know, a a a, a, a DNS spoofing does allow and support a man in the middle attack. But again, you know, that's that's still less common than anybody using open Wi-Fi, which I mean, I'm, you know, in Southern California, I'm surrounded oh, by everybody. It. Yeah, exactly. People are, you know, annoyed when that Starbucks makes you log on. Of course, once you do, it's still unencrypted. So it right. might as well be open. Right. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, this is just very cool. And I imagine we will see immediate updates for the SSL backend components of all of the browsers uh, just as quickly as they can deal with it. And, we'll, of course, we'll let our listeners know. Question two, Andrew H. in uh, Texas says, Microsoft Security Essentials, not free for all. Hey, guys, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. <clears throat> I think we said it was free. Microsoft Security Essentials is not free for commercial use. According to the website, it says for your home PC, and it will not run on Windows Server. Also, David Horwitz in Denver, Colorado, says the same thing. I really learn and enjoy your weekly podcast, Steve. I'm using Microsoft Security Essentials Beta. Very happy with the usability of the product. What is your ability? Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, your opinion of the product, and when will it be available without the beta label? Thanks for all the good information, David. So, yeah, it's not for not it's not for commercial use. Essentially, what happens is Microsoft has taken their high end corporate IT Microsoft forefront product. That's where this came from is that's Microsoft's big iron sort of, you know, formal um, uh, corporate level. They've, they've, they've been able to test it and round it out and, and make it work, develop all the signatures and patterns and, and, you know, really nail this thing down. Then what they're doing is they're peeling off a sort of like, you know, a junior version of it, which will be available for home PC users they're deliberately crippling that, that is the security essentials, so that it senses whether it's, the, it's running on a, or someone's t- attempting to run it on a server platform, and it will not run on their server versions of Windows, which, you know, Microsoft That's has reasonable. done yeah. similar things like this before. So um, I remain bullish on security essentials to answer also David's question. I'm, I am so excited that Microsoft is going to get into this. The people... Security researchers who have been looking at it are very impressed Good. with its with its zero um, false positive. Um, okay, so far that's good. So, but does it also uh, how how accurate is it in, in finding viruses? It's, it's deadly accurate. Oh, that's I mean, excellent. I, I think this puts everybody else everybody else in real trouble. So I mean, I'm I'm not shedding a tear because I know you know I've got so many people 
who are just not that computer savvy and they'll be much happier. I mean, these, these are the people I can't drag away kicking and screaming from IE. So it's like, okay, fine, stay there, but just, you know, tell Microsoft you want security essentials. And as far as I know, it's going to be later this year. So later in 09, it's supposed to be happening out, yeah. out of beta. We've been talking about it on Windows Weekly, and I just don't remember off the top of my head what the official date is. But anyway, yeah, soon. Good news, and we'll certainly let everyone know. And I'll, it's, it's the first AV I will use. I just, you know, I've gotten along without one being careful, but I'd like the idea of it being, you know, the, the, the problem is the, so many of these are just glommed on to Windows and cause more trouble than, than the virus, especially right. if you never get any. Right. Uh, and, you know, I'm just saying beta tested started June 23rd. And immediately shut down because they offered 75000 and yeah. it just sold out in, a, in less than a day. And they, all they say is by the end of calendar 2009, as you right. said. Yeah. Uh, question three, Phil in Los Angeles wonders about cellular broadband security. Uh, this is a good question. Steve, I recently started tethering my G1 phone to my laptop to get internet when I'm not near a wireless connection. I was wondering, what are the security implications for doing this? By tethering... Or using something like the MiFi, which is the sixty dollar, uh, oh. you know, a month EVDO. I'll have solution. one by the end of the day. Liam. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, is the connection as unsafe as hardwiring my laptop to the internet without a router? If so, what should I be doing to keep my computer as safe as possible while tethering? In the event you answer this question, please keep the response as simple and pedestrian as possible. <laughs> I'd like to understand the answer. Me too, Phil. Okay, Phil. Um, when th- there's many different areas of broadband security, um, one is the, not, is the idea of cracking the relatively, even more than relatively, the very weak encryption of the connection. Um, there are cracking devices around they're not common, they're expensive, but they exist, meaning that the, the encryption, unquote, that is being used for our digital cellular connections today is not near the grade of encryption really? that is available everywhere. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they use, remember, the, the problem is that these standards were put in place when phones had, you know, calculator watch chips right. in them. You know, really low power technology is when it's when these standards were put in place. So now we're all carrying computers around in our pocket that, you know, that that decompress, you know, highly compressed MPEG 4 video at 30 frames per second. I mean, these things have have computing power just fallen out of themselves. But that wasn't the case back when these standards were built. So, for example, there are multiple shift registers with with prime numbers of, of bits which rotate in a circle and the outputs are XORed in order to create a pseudo-random bit stream which is XORed with the digital data. We know that if that pseudo-random bit stream was really high quality, really random, and could not be guessed, that XORing your digital data with that makes virtually uncrackable Encryption. I mean, it's very good encryption. The problem is if you just use some shift registers that everyone knows about. I mean, this is in the spec. It's in the standard. 
They tried to keep it secret, which, of course, is the first bad sign. They didn't want anyone to know. But inevitably, this information got loose. And so so they also use frequency hopping so that the it's not you don't just put up an antenna and suck this stuff in. You need to be clever about tracking the frequency jumps that the, the digital signals make. But that's all been done, too. So so there's that aspect of it. But when he specifically asks relative to hardwiring an external router on his computer that makes me think that he's talking in terms of like the attack you know the external attacks within the channel which is itself not as secure as we would like as i was just saying and i just realized i completely blew him out of the water because he wanted a simple and pedestrian answer i don't <laughs> I wasn't gonna i was gonna let you finish <laughs> and then i was gonna say okay now Tell me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, keep going with the technical one. I think that that's important. Okay. But then so, we'll get the bottom line. So there's, so there's the one problem of someone actually cracking the wirelessness of your connection. And that exists, but it's very, very slim. Then there's the problem of you being on the internet. And so in that sense, it doesn't matter how you're on the internet. In this case, He's on the internet using broadband cellular. Now, there's two possibilities, and we actually discussed these a little bit last week. Remember, there was a, a, a um, w- w- someone wrote in and asked, why do I sometimes have this IP? And it was like 142.something or other, meaning a public IP. Right. And why do I sometimes have 10.something, right. which is a private IP? So if you had a public IP, then... It's very likely that any traffic out on the internet can come to you. If you are behind, if you have a private IP like 10. something, then that means that someone somewhere, no doubt your ISP, your 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 cellular broadband provider has a NAT router which is which which is a NAT just like you might have. You know, it's not quite the same as yours because it's very it's possible that other people on the cellular network could have access to you they also have a 10.ip so do you so there might be some visibility from one phone connection to the next so it's not as private but at least you're protected from the public internet behind a nat router that that doesn't you know that doesn't know how to send traffic to you unless You've got, an, you've got a connection established to that external uh, location. So, again, I, this is the problem is this isn't a simple, well, easy answer to yeah. uh, or easy question to answer if you're going to, you know, broadly look at the implications of cellular broadband security. I guess the question is, should I what are there any precautions I should take? Should I stay away from banking? What should I not do? Um, okay. If 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 he talks about as unsafe as hardwiring his laptop to the internet without a router, it's not that then, unsafe. Then really, the only thing a router is providing you is a the a a, a, a essentially a hardware firewall. So you've got a software firewall in any computer you're now right. using. The Just Macs have on. them. Yep. Windows has them. Linux machines have them. So if you're behind your software firewall, since you're not concerned about 
malware in your machine messing with it, you're concerned about external threats getting in, you're safe. Okay. But don't assume that every transaction is encrypted or safely encrypted. Very that's that's very much the case. Well, you're you you've got encryption on your broadband. Just weak it's encryption. not it's not in it's not state of the art, you know, powerful. It's not, you know, AES SSL style or triple DES even. I mean, it's it's weak encryption, right. but it's way good enough so that it's very unlikely that anyone is going to be able to hack in and track your 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 um, spectrum frequency jumping cellular phone all and, around. And they'd have to be going after you particularly. They'd uh, there's now equipment which is very good about about cracking this kind of right. stuff, but it's very expensive. It's not stuff that hobbyists have. Okay. So I guess the pedestrian answer is you probably don't need to worry about it. Theoretically, it's a possibility, but it would have to. It's a pretty high end thing to do. And wherever possible, use SSL. If you've got an SSL connection, then irrespective of everything else, even if they could hack into your frequency spectrum hopping, you know, pseudo random stream encrypted connection, then they hit real in industry right. strength encryption and they don't go any further i always uh you know of course your banking and all your purchases are probably ssl anyway uh, but i try to the one thing that really is a vulnerability it seems to me is your email if you're not sending that password uh encrypted if you're not reading the email encrypted you should and most email uh providers will let you do that yep john jones in world <clears throat> world uk is seeing red in firefox Hi, Steve. After having problems with some sites that I need to visit responding very sluggishly, I finally complained to the admin of one of those sites. He said, well, you're using IE7. That could be the problem. He says his site was not meant to be used by such an old browser. (laughs) It's not that old. No. Whilst I balked at the thought of IE7 being old, I thought, oh, well, what the heck? I got the latest version of Firefox and have been forcing myself to use it. After hearing that you are now exclusively, except for uh, updates, doing the same. Yep. The good news is all my sites are indeed much snappier now. However, I have noticed something in Gmail that's bugging me. I have my account settings to always use HTTPS. This is just exactly what we were just saying, which is he's using SSL when he logs in and reads his email in Gmail. And when I initially log into my account, it shows HTTPS and the rest of the URL in green text is one would expect. I'm safe. But after a few minutes of maintaining my emails, I've noticed the text in the URL has gone to red. It still says HTTPS, but now it's red. If I right-click and view the page info, it says connection partially encrypted. This is I get this message a lot from IE as well. Well, this page is only partially encrypted. You want to continue? Doesn't tell you what part. If I further click on details, it says... Parts of the page you're viewing were not encrypted before being transmitted over the Internet. Information sent over the Internet without encryption can be seen by other people while it's in transit. The URL text never goes back to green until the next time I log in, but never stays green. What's going on? Are my transmissions encrypted or not? Well, people who used to use IE may be familiar with the the little pop-up that IE generates. It says... Yep. 
this page contains mixed content. Mixed content. Yeah. That's what they used to say. And um, I, I can't diagnose what's going on with, with, with Gmail, but I can, I can explain what this means. Uh, it's probably not something to concern yourself with, but my guess is there's a little glitch in Gmail somewhere. Well, I, I think I can answer. I mean, I think some of the text that's sent by Gmail, perhaps the Google ads, they're not encrypting. But I, I'm, I'm pretty certain your email is encrypted. In this and that's case. why I'm suggesting that it's yeah. really not something to worry about. Yeah. Now, remember that the way a web page is built is that there's the, the main body of the page, which is the, the, the text typically that you get from the URL. The, it says HTTPS which is your assurance that that portion that is the original sort of text content is encrypted. The problem is that when the browser receives that, it contains requests, other URLs to other stuff. For example, images and other components of the page. They all, if, if they don't specify any HTTP colon slash slash. That is, if it's a so-called a relative URL, well, where for example, it'll just say the URL is slash images dot google dot com, and then the name of the image. What the browser does is it just says, "Oh, this is relative to the current page," meaning that whatever encryption the current page is using, that that fetch for that asset, that image will also use. So um, so there you sort of automatically get all of the assets of the page fetched over the same encryption or not as the main page. But if, as, as Leo suggests, for example, ads may be explicitly saying HTTP colon slash slash and then, and then the rest of the URL, that's telling the browser explicitly use non-secured fetch for this particular asset. That is, it overrides the default for the page, which is established by the URL of the page. And that's where the red comes from in the page. Now, it's the reason I'm hesitant to draw any really firm conclusions is that there's probably nowhere on earth you find JavaScript so heavily used as... <laughs> At Google. And Lord only knows what, I mean, basically you're downloading a program when you are using Gmail, which is getting more sophisticated by the month. So, again, it's just impossible to know what this JavaScript is doing. What, you know, as you click around among pages and things, it feels to me like it loses synchronization or something gets lost where there was trying to hold on to initially, at least from John's explanation, he says, after a while of maintaining my mail, something goes red. I think Urban Wars Net in our chat room has actually hit the answer. Ah, Some of the email you're getting probably is HTML and has relative links within it to unencrypted content. Ah, that's exactly, I would, that would perfectly do it. Yeah, because if, if it were the Google ad, well, it would immediately go red. Precisely. But if it's uh, tied to various mail you're looking at, it might not go red until that kind of you 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 view that kind of mail, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, well part of this page is unencrypted. It's now the, he, it's the John message. Does, John, who asked the question, does say that once this happens, it never stops happening until he logs out. Hmm. So 
again, I, I think, you know, uh, the, the, the idea from the guy in the chat room, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. But again, so much is going on with something like Gmail, which is just script land. That it's difficult, you know, the, you know, my original explanation here sort of applies mostly to a generic typical web page. You know, these things are so automated now, it's difficult to know. My guess is it's a bug. That is, if you log out and you log back in and you're green again for a while, then something times out or something fetches something or refreshes or who knows what's going on. But that's at least what, what the red means. Um, and it, again, I couldn't definitively say whether the textual content is safe or not. One thing you could do if you were really curious is to, and had the ability, would be to monitor your packets. I mean, you know, put a packet monitor on and see, you know, what content it is as you move around from one mail to the next, which is is going over the wire in the clear. Yeah. That's the problem is they don't tell, the browser doesn't, it says some of this is unencrypted, but they don't say which. I mean, it's, it's with with Gmail or anything on Google, it's become a program. I mean, it's a client side program you're running. It's not just a browser anymore. Yeah. And Urban Wars said it would make sense if it was the message, it would stay red because now that that session has been, you know, uh, some of it's unencrypted, it's not going to go green again. Yeah, but if you went to a different, if you went like back to where you were before and looked at them well, and the whole page is SSL. Yeah, if you went if went to mail that didn't have any of those problems, you'd expect it to say, "Oh, look, now it's right. all encrypted again." Right. Now we just don't know. I don't think it's that smart. But that's what it means. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not right. really it's, we don't know that it's really bad. Um I think it's just a bug. Ryan in New York, two questions and a comment. He says, "Hi Steve, I have two questions for you. You talked a lot about wireless encryption on your show. Because of it, I've always stayed on top of the latest wireless security measures for my home router." Recently, I bought a new router to upgrade to wireless 802.11n. After hooking up the router and making sure I can get online, the next thing I did was to go to the wireless settings page, turning on uh, WPA2 encryption. That's Good. when I noticed something I'd never seen or heard about before. WPA-PSK-TKIP and WPA2-PSK-AES. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Does it use both forms of WPA to encrypt the signal? It's got a plus. Uh, and if so, how does that work? And why would I want to or not want to do that? Second question, a quickie. My parents are fairly well connected. My mom just recently bought a laptop. I've noticed that their passwords uh, for email and other sites just make me cringe. I've tried to explain to them why they should use better passwords. But they seem to either not care or don't want to bother with the hassle of, and I bet this is it, remembering more complex passwords. I'm not sure what to do. I'm afraid that they use similar passwords on their bank accounts. Is there any easy way to get them to use passwords at least better than things like QWERTY? <laughs> I I see a lot of people use passwords ASDF, which is the first four letters on the on the on the second row. I mean, it's like, come on. Uh short of me writing a program that can manage your passwords for them. Thanks so much for the show. You have no idea how much help you've been for me in understanding computer science concepts before I actually learned them in class. Many times you go more in depth and explain things much more clearly than some of my computer science teachers. Please keep up the good work. The show is more of a never-ending computer science and crypto course for me than a podcast. You really should write a textbook. Or 10. Signed, Ryan in New York. So, okay. There are some routers which are offering a sort of 
an either one of the above encryption. So you could you could choose WPAPSK using TKIP, or you can choose WPA2PSK using AES, or you can choose both. And the idea is that 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 it would allow you it would allow the router to accept connections from clients using either now if if psk if the tkip encryption were a lot weaker than aes i would say you definitely don't want to choose that you would want to just use wpa2 dash psk with aes but there's really nothing wrong with WPA PSK with TKIP encryption. It's lighter weight, um, requires less processing, um, so it, it's really not a bad thing. On the other hand, if you know that your devices you're going to want to use all support the the latest generation, the so-called WPA2 PSK using AES encryption then it's it's you know a tiny bit more secure to tell your router only allow connections with the best possible encryption i mean that in general security um uh best practices that's certainly the case you only want to allow the most secure things you don't want to allow less secure fallbacks although in this case tkip it's fine as long as it's wpa and not wep which was the bad stuff. So, you know, that's what that option is. It said it said it lets the router accept connections using either of the uh, encryptions, um, not forcing it to choose one or the other. It lets the, the, the connecting uh, device specify which it wants to use. And again, if you know that, that you, the things you're connecting support AES encryption, I would choose it on the router too. Just, it just makes more sense. Um, as for your folks, um, I don't know what to tell them. Um, Make them uh, listen to this show over and over and over. Yeah, I just, you know, I can, this is the problem is um, they could very well go about their whole lives using bad passwords and never have a problem. We know that many people using bad passwords get hacked as a percentage. You know, I don't know how, what percentage of people get hacked having bad passwords, but for those of us who follow security and care about security and recognize that bad things really do happen to good people, um, using complex passwords makes us feel better and makes us more secure. There's no doubt about it. Um, whether your parents have enough security, it's just impossible for me to judge. And I don't know. I mean, I don't have any magic elixir for for suddenly getting them to care more it really is the issue um of making it easier to remember and that's why people use bad passwords because they can remember them and it's certainly no better to put post-it notes down the side of your screen with those hard to remember passwords (laughs) you know what i would get i guess what i would suggest is you know those of us who are really security conscious are good about not reusing the same password what what i would a compromise would be to come up with one really good password mm-hmm. that is, you know, upper, lower case, a few special symbols, maybe tie it into something in their lives. Like, 
you know, mix the, their date of births in with the alternating letters of, you know, their dog or something. You know, something where you can say, here's how I came up with this. Just if you guys can memorize this, change everything that, you know, that, that's quirky right now over to this. So, so maybe better, than, better than nothing. Exactly. So it's a compromise. You tell them, you know, just one unbreakable password. You really ought to have different unbreakable passwords. But that's I really understand that's going too far. So a good compromise is just one really good password that they would just memorize once. You know, you can quiz them over dinner. Say, okay, mom, what is it? And, uh, you know, and get them to switch over to it. I think that's probably the best you can do. And frankly, that's pretty good. You know what I use, and this this might be simple enough for mom and dad to get get, get using with it. Um, I have a master password, which is as you you know you described, is that one password that's you know not a dictionary password. It's easy to remember for me because it's an acronym for a long sentence, um, and then I mix cases and I put punctuation and stuff like that. And then I use that master password with a website called Super Gen Pass. Have you ever seen this? Um, it does a hash between the master password and the top-level domain. Right. So when I go to PayPal.com, um, I press. A, I have a bookmark on the top of my page. It generates this this password. It'll ask me for the master password, and then hash the master password, which is always the same, and give you some gobbledygook. And gives me really, really gobbledygook. And uh, and that gobbledygook is the unique password for that page It's only used on that page or, but I, or, or, or for that domain that do, i'm sorry that domain right um but i can always regenerate it as long as i remember my master password and the bookmark does it for you automatically then that way when they go to a page they press the button it fills in the password for them you can even have it remember the password which is probably not the most secure thing to do but uh so you always have unique passwords that are really good strong passwords um and all you have to remember is one password this is how I do it. I mean, it's worked for me. It doesn't work everywhere because some pay and, and it has your favorite thing, JavaScript running in the background. But. <laughs> it really that ought to be just an add on. I mean, it's it's a perfect. I think so. Thing. Yeah. Instead of having to go to I don't like the idea of going to a third party site and having them do that for me. Well, you don't. You can download the JavaScript. Oh, actually, okay. the JavaScript on my case, it depends on your browser. IE won't do this, but Firefox will put the JavaScript in the bookmark. So the JavaScript's running from the bookmark. Okay. It's not good. a very complicated, I mean, you can look at the code, but and it can embed it in the bookmark. So the bookmark just says, what's the TLD? Hash it with the master password. What's the master password? Hash it, spit it out, and it actually fills in the password field automatically. That's supergenpass.com. And um, I, think it's, I think it's a good way to go, you know? Anyway, that's my suggestion. That's kind of in, bet- in between what you were suggesting and true security. <laughs> which would be using a 64 byte perfect password every time a nightmare a, di- a different one every and time. then a database to keep track of all that yeah it's a somebody's correcting me yes it's a bookmarklet not a bookmarklet bookmarklet right. and it uses javascript uh let's see here david johnston in sydney australia says thank you for talking about w3c validators uh, he says, thanks for bringing up. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Let's let's go back a little bit. Actually, speaking of W3C, Kevin uh, uh, Gadiani in Overland Park, Kansas. It was the guy who sent us in the uh, message. about Exactly. The, the errors he says, thanks so much for reading my question. I've been listening since 2005. 
which is, I think, when we started. I think so. Back when I was in college and was extremely surprised to hear my question read on the air. Thanks for discussing it. I will cover GRC on badmarkup.com. Oh, it's his site. Yep. But also explain your reasoning. Fortunately for me, you have well-written show notes for referencing purposes. Yes. That's one thing Steve does really well. Here's some personal bits. While I'm not adept enough to program an entire blogging system myself just yet, as you have, Steve, my business's website and any future ones I've been programming using PHP and Notepad++. Had I not used PHP, I could understand how difficult making a site like GRC is. I actually use PHP to change the CSS files I send to browsers, even changing the doc type and meta tags for older browsers like IE, which is why my site is even IE4 compliant. Uh, other than Google Analytics, I run no JavaScript on my site and have a good policy to make it work on all browsers, including mobile and pocket PC devices. I love what you've done with GRC. Because of that, you're the main person I think of when I do web design. I always tell people, if Steve can do it without JavaScript, so can I. Much with the way you program an assembler, I try as hard as possible to use the most efficient mem- methods in any sort of design I do because I know there's someone else out there who does them too. Thank you for such a great show. Well, That's I like nice. that as a lead-in to, and remember, this guy was critical of the 13,000-some-odd errors <laughs> on the on the Security Now page, and I said, yeah, okay, you know, uh, that's true. I don't care. Because it's hand-coded, baby. Well, and yes, and I'm and I'm not doing per-browser customization. Um, uh, that's just not the approach I took. I certainly could have used the the user agent header in the request to determine what browser was was pulling the page and then customize the page per browser. But you know, for me, the, the pages are there; they do their job, and I'm fine with it. Yeah, and that really is only practical, I think, if you're using a javascript because you have to do uh, if thens and stuff like that it's hard to do an html plain html so that segues to david's question from sydney australia thanks for talking about w3c validators dear steve thank you for bringing up the topic of w3c w3c is the World Wide web consortium by the way they're the ones who make the html standard Uh, it's run by tim berners lee the guy who invented html although i'm an idealist and wish that every browser and site used compliant code this This just isn't the world we live in. I, too, have been hand-coding sites for many years, pride myself on having sites that work on a very large range of browsers. I'm so tired of having to defend my work in the face of W3C validators and those with just enough knowledge to run them. So thank you for making me feel a little bit better. That's nice. And I thank David for making me feel a little bit better. All all, All of those of us who are are out on the edge saying, eh, I don't validate. Well, we're all together. You know, most if you most sites don't validate. Most don't have thirteen thousand errors, but most sites do not. <laughs> most sites do not validate per page. Per page, yeah. <laughs> that's quite a lot. <laughs> but most sites, a very few sites, will validate fully. Kendall Bailey in Des Moines, Iowa, uses buy.com. We were talking about that. In fact, I'm so glad. Thank. I wanted to thank you again for coming on the radio show this weekend. Oh yeah, it was perfect. And I, you were right that it's it's a big issue. We had a we got a bunch of email from people Good. sharing their stories. This is that issue with uh, some e-tailers like Buy Orbits, Flowers dot com, Fandango, Fandango, um, kind of colluding with these uh, web. They call them uh, 
web loyalty loyalty. programs, but really it has nothing to do with loyalty. It has to do with money extraction, giving them your credit card and letting them very easily charge you without kind of selling, selling them your credit card. Oh, yes. They don't give it away for free. (laughs) Selling them your credit card because they say, well, you agreed to doing that. That's personal information. It's in our fine print. (sighs) Don't you read the fine print? (laughs) And uh, these companies really kind of racking up charges without your knowledge uh, because the fine print allowed them to just say, well, here's just give us the email address and we'll charge you. (laughs) So I've been uh, I've used buy.com exclusively with Google checkout, says Kendall. See, that's the solution because they don't have your credit card, right? Mm -hmm. Never had any problem or coupon offers. Thanks for mentioning the issue. I'll be sure to watch out. I use a Discover card secure online account number. With Google Checkout, basically, it's a single vendor account number as opposed to a single use number. Now, we've we've talked about that. PayPal offers that as well. Since all charges go through Google, it works for multiple Google Checkout sites. So this is clever. He's he's using one credit card that goes to Google. Google then does the transaction with these other sites without giving up even that credit card. And these other sites uh, couldn't use the credit card. They have nothing to sell. They got nothing. Um. Since all charges go through Google, it works for multiple Google checkout accounts. Buy.com is by far my most used e-tailer, but they don't have an email address, my email address or credit card, only my Google checkout data. And Google doesn't even have my uh, my full Discover account number. So I hope I've covered myself as much as reasonable. Have I? Yeah, I think he has. And the reason I wanted to bring this up was that you and I on the radio show after the podcast talked about the, this notion of using PayPal or Google Checkout. Um, I don't know if there are there any other third party. There are a lot of them, um, but those are the big two. Yeah. um, And I don't encounter others very often. Um, I'm happy to see more and more Google Checkout. I'd like like to use Google. Google. I would. I'd love to use Google all the time. Yes. And so Amazon is the third one. That's very Amazon as a no kidding. Yeah. So you go to a site that's not selling books or anything and you can yeah. use Amazon in order to, I, I to think so yeah to pursue your transaction okay I hadn't seen that but but anyway the idea being that the, the beauty of that is you you're keeping your your credit card information confidential from the site from which you're buying they've got a relationship with PayPal and Google checkout maybe maybe with Amazon or whatever third party you're using to provide the the assurance of payment and there's nothing for them to sell. So you know, they can be as loyal to the web as they want to be and uh, and unfortunately get nothing but you know, the, the purchase price. No money for selling your credit information to some third party. Matt Ridley in Appleton, Wisconsin wants to scold us. He says, love the podcast since I found them around episode 150 or so. Well, you got a lot to listen to, Matt. In fact, I have to say that that while we do cover topical stuff at the beginning of every show, most of what's in these shows is timeless. Yes. Um, you know, if we're not talking about specific security flaws, a lot of what we're talking about is is fundamentals that, uh, you know, you can listen to episode one and learn something that's useful today, even though it was four years ago. However, I think I'm missing something. After listening to the massive security update that was uh, 206, a couple episodes back, you and Leo commented at the end of the show, you don't understand why we can't be proactive and take these bad computer clusters down. We're talking about botnets, I guess. Um, you didn't reprimand the BBC, or didn't you reprimand the BBC just a month or two earlier for buying a botnet and after researching it, notifying the users that they were part of a botnet 
uh, as being a violation of privacy. What's the difference? I completely agree. We need to have something that can scout and clean these botnets. Although the term Skynet seems to come to mind. But I fear these same privacy rage uh, uh, as being a result. Or am I missing what was being said about the proposed solution in the original story? Yeah, I think he misunderstood us. Yeah, he did. Um, we, um, we were not saying uh, that 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 we wish that it was that we wish we didn't advocate taking these <laughs> botnets down exactly what we were saying was we, we were talking about the oh in the future we imagine that the laws will change there's pressure to get the laws to change because the bad guys have such an advantage over the white hats because the white hats who know how to how to counterattack, how to disinfect, how to commandeer a botnet and, and shut it down are unable to do so because even in the best interest of the Internet, the world, the, the people whose computers have been hacked, even though we're trying to help people, it's against the law. We, 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 we can't break the law. The bad guys already are breaking the law. So, so the problem is we need the law to change. So my, our reprimanding the, reprimanding the BBC for doing what they did was that they presented a notice on people's computers telling them <laughs> that their machine was infected and here's where you need to go in order to fix it. While that was, you know, that was in the best interests of everyone, and I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, it was not legal. And they got not just us, but many people were upset that that's what the BBC and they actually they did it through an affiliate security company. Um, and so, you know, brought some good needed attention to this, but technically broke the law, at least, you know, what is U.S. law um, in the process. So so what I'm bemoaning is that there's no level playing field at the moment between the bad guys and the good guys. I mean, there almost never is, but from a technology standpoint, our hands are tied at the moment. The good guys' hands are tied, while the bad guys run run around in circles and do whatever they want to. Well, and maybe appropriately tied. I don't really think it's a great idea. This that's vigilante justice, and I think yes. it's probably not the ideal way to solve this problem. Yes, I wanted to mention it. We did. We forgot to mention this in the um, news update, and maybe next week we can talk about it. There, uh, one of the things demonstrated at. at uh, Black Hat was something called a boot kit, which is a combination of a, a root kit and a modification of the master boot record that allowed you to bypass TrueCrypt's yep. full disk encryption. Yep, I know about it. Um, I looked at it, and it actually doesn't do that. Oh, good. Okay. Um, yes, it. You, you. What it does is it installs some hooks into the system such that if you're using whole disk encryption, it's able to to be a Trojan even though you've got whole disk encryption. Oh, okay. It doesn't unencrypt. No. It just it launches itself despite before the encryption takes place. Precisely. It it's able to hook. It only runs on BIOS, not EFI BIOSes. Traditional BIOSes, it hooks interrupt 13, which is the the disk BIOS interrupt. And so the idea is it's malware you can get on your machine which gets on even though you're using TrueCrypt. Um, got it. To protect your drive, so it, it. but it's not bypassing TrueCrypt encryption at all. It's just riding along and sneaking in, and then staying alive after you provided your password and decrypted your drive. Well, thank you for that update. I'm glad sure. I asked. 
Question 10. We're going to talk about Fandango. Justin Lomaster in Oregon says, I ordered some Fandango tickets before. Uh, Fandango lets you buy movie tickets. And likely never again now. And yes, I had one of those coupon offers, the loyalty system pop up. I think there was an incentive, a free, huge quotation marks, movie ticket. Oh, dear. That's a lousy incentive. I looked nine bucks. Thank you. I looked all over the page, found nothing mentioning a charge or a fee. I signed up. And yes, I got a free ticket code intending to cancel the service if I didn't want it. Sometime later, I found an odd charge on my account. Whoops. I looked up the company and found a number and called them. I got the service canceled. I got the money refunded. There was no hassle. They know. And nobody ever does this, so they, they, can, they can afford to be generous. Exactly. It was indeed the offer I'd signed up for at Fandango. I'd assumed I just missed the fact that I would be charged until I heard your episode uh, 207. Thanks for letting me know. I didn't miss a notice. It wasn't there. While Fandango is a useful service, I think I'll take my chances at the box office instead of buying tickets online. P.S. I just got Spinrite. No miracle stories yet, but maybe someday. No, maybe not. Maybe you won't. Maybe you don't need a miracle. I'm just glad well, to have if, it at if hand. If you run right? it from time to time, you, you won't need a miracle. It's, exactly. a, it's a miracle avoidance system. Think of it that way. <laughs> How do you like that? Uh, by the way, uh, another another intermezzo. Um, Apple has just released an update for uh, Leopard 10.5.8. Uh, they don't mention any security fixes, but I'm sure they're in there. They do say oh, it enhances yeah. stability, compatibility, and security as your Mac of your Mac. So, and that's always good. <laughs> we don't know what we don't know what, but it does something. So I just wanted to toss in Justin's comment. Here was a listener who's actually wow. bit, f- fell into the net of the web loyalty, had an authorized charge occurring on his card. Uh, he didn't know it, but it would prob- apparently would have been periodic. That is, he subscribed yeah. to something, so it may not have been a one-time charge, but he jumped on it and got it reversed. And as you said, Leo, they'll certainly not fight you um, on that Well, account. we hope not. I mean, yeah. geez. And so, you know, this stuff really did, it does happen, and it did happen to a listener. Do you review your credit card statements every month carefully for the fine tooth comb? Sue actually does. My bookkeeper does. And so, and she asks me, she says, Steve, I need your receipts because I, you know, I pile them up in my wallet as I'm doing things. And also I print them out when I buy things on the web and she matches up everything. And she, there have been times when she said, okay, I didn't get a receipt for this. And what's this charge? Do you recognize this? I go, oh yeah, I know what that is. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I've, I've got her watching and it's, you know, it comes in handy. I got to start doing that. Dan in Walpole, Massachusetts reports that his parents' computer got Trojaned. Again, dear Steve, my parents' computer has been infected by a Trojan twice in the last six months. Uh, first time they got antivirus 2009. That bit an awful lot of people. Yeah, we talked about that. 35 million people. Was that the final count? Holy moly. Yeah. I had them back, uh, back up their data and restore from Dell's hidden restore partition. I'm not sure how they got owned this time, but they were getting pop-ups from... Home Antivirus 2010. Well, it's nice that they updated the year. (laughs) They're staying ahead. Uh, He's done some research. He says that's usually installed by a Trojan. Maybe Malwarebytes can fix this. Malwarebytes, B-Y-T-E-S dot org, uh, is the place to go. That does get rid of some of these versions. And and most better probably yet is the Microsoft uh, Software, uh, Malicious Software Removal Tool, MSRT. Yep. Um. 
But I suspect another backup and restore is in their future, he says. They have antivirus software. They have Windows automatic updates turned on. I've explained to them they shouldn't clink links or attachment and email. I've installed Firefox. I think they're still using IE, he says. What else can I do to harden them against malware so they don't have to do a full restore every six months? Sandbox IE is going to be too hard for them. So is a VM. You know, you can't harden people against... um, Bad habits. Yeah, there. Thank you. I was going to say stupidity. That's much nicer. Yeah, the only thing, I mean, the only thing I would think is he didn't mention what their email client is. It sounds like if they're, he's not unable to pry them away from IE, they're almost certainly using some flavor of Outlook, yeah, yeah. Uh, which uses the IE uh, display um, control by default. Um, the only thing I could suggest, I mean, would be moving them to a non-Microsoft email client, um, maybe to Gmail through Firefox. Um, you know, I wonder how they're using IE. If he's installed Firefox, I would imagine it's now the default URL handler. So when they click on links, it's going to open Firefox, unless they're still using Outlook, in which case they're technically still using IE right. because it's what's viewing their mail. So I would say to Dan, get them away from Outlook. Outlook has traditionally and historically been probably the number one problem. You could argue now that browsers are more of the target than than mail, but from from the history that he's talking about, it sounds like they, they just can't not click on things in email. So to make that safer would be the thing that would be the next target of opportunity um, that I would try about go about changing, just switch them to something other than Outlook and, and maybe hide IE from them so that they're not able to get to it. You know, put Firefox's icon where IE is and just say, no folks, you really need to do this. The other problem is it sounds like Dan's cleaning up their problems and so it's really not a problem for them. They may just be... They're know, not incented ca- to do anything about Exactly. It. They're just casual computer users. And it's like, oh, son, we got a problem again. Come, you know, come over for dinner and, and fix our computer. Yeah. So, you know, Dan does. Doesn't seem like it's causing them a huge problem. Nope. But I'm sure glad he's on top of it because it could cause them a huge problem. You bet. I guess, you know, the thing is, we used to say don't click on links in email, but now, really, anytime you get a pop-up that says download something or fix this, that sounds like what's biting them. They should, you know, think twice before you say, oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, yes, in fact, in both of those cases, both the Antivirus 2009 and Home Antivirus 2010, you know, what happens is you go to a site and it says, oh, scanning your computer for malware. And it shows you the progress bar. And it says, malware has been detected. Click here to take care of it. I mean, again, it, it sounds like there's an education problem. His right. parents don't know any better. So they're, oh, no. And they don't want to bother their son, Dan. And so they, they think they can handle this themselves. Unfortunately, they've just gone down the wrong path. Maybe Dan sent it to us. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Antivirus 2010 is here. Yay. What's what's maddening, and maybe they need a better antivirus, is that their antivirus isn't catching this. Shouldn't it stop this behavior? It seems like the if it's got good heuristics, it would notice this. Anyway. Yeah, the problem, of course, is that's always a moving target. Yeah. They're always lagging behind. This is what I say on the radio show, the, uh, the, your software, your antivirus, your firewall, that's a second line of defense. You, you are the real line right. of defense and your behavior. Right. 
David Stevens in Bloomington, Indiana, wonders whether a VPN can be used to transport a virus. Steve, I've been listening since episode one of Security Now. I've learned so much from you and Leo in these four years. I can't begin to thank you both enough for helping me learn so much about protecting myself and friends and family online. Here's my question. I was talking with my boss today, and we were wondering if a virus can trans- transmit travel through a, a VPN and infect a PC on the other end. Her son recently had a very nasty virus infection on his PC that we think he got through a file he downloaded in LimeWire. Yeah, that sounds right. I know that was the first mistake. My boss asked me today if a virus from her son's PC was able to make the leap to her PC, would it be able to go through the VPN she's set up back to her office and then infect PCs there? I thought that was a good question. I don't know the answer. I knew you would, though, if this is a possibility. Would simply putting an additional router in her home and segmenting off her PC do the trick? Thanks for your help, Steve. It's always appreciated. Well, that's a great question. And unfortunately, the news is all bad. Um, It is certainly the case that a VPN would transport a virus. That is, it's not what it's designed to prevent. It is essentially like providing a secure link between mom's machine, which is sometimes on the home network, but when the VPN is established, now the machine is on the corporate network and probably insulated from the home network. So the, the threat model here is that when the VPN is not on and mom's machine is on the same LAN as her son's machine, um, there certainly are viruses that are LAN aware. We've talked about them not long ago on, on this podcast where they'll, um, there are things that propagate through Windows shares that that use the fact that they're behind the router and look for other machines on the network and jump over to them. So that would allow an infection to jump within the LAN from one machine to the other, and that is a frequent occurrence these days. It's one of the ways that that malware is propagating itself better because it knows that it's frequently going to have other machines that are there. Then when the VPN comes up, that that machine which is now infected it's essentially on the corporate lan mm-hmm. and so the same scenario recurs and and what's worse now we've got malware that we know is lan aware because that's how it, it it infected this machine mom's machine because it was lan aware so now it's on a huge lan <laughs> with all kinds of <laughs> potential targets Ooh, goody goody gum Exactly. It's just found Nirvana. Yeah. So it uses its VPN connection, which is essentially it's it's protecting bad guys from getting in. But once you're in, once you're on the corporate LAN, you know, all the goodies are there and available. So um, it's certainly the case that a corporation needs to protect itself. And this is a, this is a common occurrence, protect itself from infected traveling machines that connect by VPN into the LAN. So this is an, a well-understood problem. It's certainly the case that that protecting mom's computer when it's not LAN linked into the, the corporate network is a good thing. And we've talked about using multiple routers to segment a LAN so that so that machines can't see each other, so that you have an insecure and a secure LAN area, um, and that's we, we've done some podcasts on that. So I would I would recommend that Dave takes a look 
back in time, as you say, Leo, all of these things we've talked about are still, you know, surprisingly relevant. You could almost wish they weren't so relevant any longer, but no, things have not gotten any better in the last four years. And so that would probably solve the problem. Yeah. 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 VPN just means it's a network. You're just you're expanding the network. That's all. Exactly. All right, so that's 12 questions, but uh, we do have one more side note, and I, I thought we'd throw this one in at the end. Dave Shu in Maple Grove, Minnesota. His subject is vitamin D, a great tangent. I've been, by the way, I yesterday intentionally did my rowing out on the deck at the gym so I'd get full sun, and I even took my glasses off so the light would get in my eyes because you need vitamin D in your eyeballs too. But we'll... I don't know if this makes a difference, but let's find out. I've listened since the beginning, and I hope you never stop doing this show, Steve. Also a Spinrite owner. I was very pleased to hear your take on vitamin D. Having been in the science field and following it for many years, I'm a white male about your age, also starting to track my blood level, specifically summer versus winter. Now, I live in Minnesota, and for exercise, I like to run. So about six months of the year, I can get my exposure without supplements. And I agree with you, the supplement amounts are very low, so I'll be... It'll be interesting to see what level I can maintain during the frozen tundra months when I can't get outside. The tangents you and Leo, by the way, go on are very enjoyable, like sci-fi. I would love to hear occasional updates on your vitamin D research. Thanks for the great show and all your hard work, Dave. Thank you, Dave. So, yeah, I just so I want to know what's the deal. We're going to talk about it next week. Really, the first episode of our fifth year. So you, so why don't you tell folks recap what you've been talking about? Um. What I have to say is that that I've, we've had a lot of people who've written in and said, you know, uh, love to hear about security. It's called security now for a reason, you know, and certainly that will always be our focus. From time to time, things come up which are important. Um, I've been researching vitamin D as a health hobbyist, you know, we all know I'm not a medical professional. I, you know, packets are my passion and internet and security and coding. But um, health is also a passion that that I've only talked about glancingly from time to time. But when I get into something, I generally get in with both feet. And I've read, oh, I, maybe 50 to 60 um, scientific journal articles now and i am full to the brim with with a bunch of information which has begun to sort of take form and is coherent and i think is really important i would argue that next week's podcast will be the most important podcast we've ever produced really i really think so Um, having nothing to do with security having for for once i mean when i'm (laughs) We're going to wander off the reservation, but don't worry, we'll be back the week after. But, but you know, we're all human. We all have bodies. Um, it is the case that, that from everything I've read, and I have, I'm putting together a page that will be up next week uh, with, with links and PDFs for full documentation of, of everything that I've learned so people can go to the same source. But... It's it's very clear to me that that the lag our medical our medical system has is is a problem in this instance. There's a I, I've this has come together in a way that I can also tell a story about how we evolved and 
where Caucasians came from and why. And, you know, I believe that our listeners... <laughs> oh, this is good. I'm going to tease this. Next week, where Caucasians came from. And why. And why. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I mean, there's a, there's a story here. There's an amazing amount of epidemiological research, which is only beginning to happen in the last few years. And uh, again, I, I, I'm not kidding uh, when I say that for our listeners, I think this will be the most important episode we've ever produced. Wow. I can't wait to listen. I'm very excited. And I, I will spend more time producing this next episode than I have ever spent on any podcast before. I just, I really sincerely believe it's important and, you know, I, I know our listeners care about us. We care about them. Um, this is, I, and believe me, I mean, I, I believe that one of the things people enjoy about the podcast, you know, as we've read uh, from time to time, that people appreciate the fact that I can explain complicated things in a way that they understand. I may have let down our one listener earlier t- today who asked for a simple explanation of cellular broadband okay. security. Um, but, but I understand pretty much the whole picture now. Um, although I'm not a biologist or a trained medical professional, I understand the whole picture of vitamin D metabolism. I'm going to explain it because it turns out to be important. And I think our listeners will find it really fascinating, which is sure. why they tune in. I'm sure they will. We will. And, uh, you know, and I should say up front, and we'll say it again next week, you're not a, you're a, you're a, you're a scientist. You're not a junk science. Steve is the least, un, the least superstitious person I know. So this is not going to be uh, some airy-fairy thing. This is going to be based on, on research. No, I mean it's it's the, the Mayo Clinic, the the lots of references from the uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and the Journal of Nutrition, and I mean serious science, which has been done, which has just not come to light. And the good news is, it, it dealing with the consequences of what I will describe is incredibly simple and inexpensive. And what we'll do, by the way, we'll still have the security news at the beginning and the errata at the beginning. So you'll get that security fix. And if you're not interested in the vitamin D, although I think you will be, move along. That's the beauty of a podcast. You I don't would, have I to would, listen. Yes, I will urge our listeners. I'll hook them in the first 10 minutes, okay. I promise. And, <laughs> you know, I don't do fluff. This will not be fluff. This is, this is important. Great. I look forward to it. Steve, thanks as always. A wonderful show. A great episode. Thanks to all our correspondents. If you have questions for stevegrc.com slash feedback is the place to go, and we answer questions every other episode, every even episode, at least at the moment. Um, and, of course, at grc.com, you'll find the 16-kilobit versions of this show for quick download if you're bandwidth impaired. There's a transcript. It's very easy to download, read, and search. And one of the reasons uh, Steve does that. Show notes are excellent there, too. And, of course, all of Steve's great software, most of which is free. Uh, programs like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Perfect Passwords... And there's one one paid program out of all of that that you must have there, and that's SpinRite, the world's finest, the only hard drive maintenance utility you will ever need. GRC dot com. Steve, we'll see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. Security now.